What up, family? This is a sermon from the downtown congregation of Park Church. May it bless your soul as you dig deeper into God's Word. More resources and info are online at parkchurch.org. Good morning, Park Church. We're going to be reading from Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol lay hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord, and righteous our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O Lord, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord. In your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray this morning and then we'll be in Psalm 116 that was just read. Father, we pause to thank you that you are so merciful to your children, your sons and daughters. You love us. You love us even when we are on the run from you, even when we don't understand you or your ways, even when we complain in our spirit or in our words, you are merciful to us. Thank you for the pattern that's given us in this psalm to cry out to you. And I pray that you'll help many, many in this room and um, on the live stream as they're listening, uh, maybe on vacation this week, uh, maybe at home with a sick child, uh, maybe themselves sick. Lord, help us to, to all across this city be a people that cry out and call on your name. Um, Lord, thank you that you're present here with us. We're not just reading words on a page and trying to make sense of them but you are active and powerful and gracious here in this next few moments by your spirit to be a faithful counselor and guide, um, to teach us kind of from the inside out what these things mean, what they have to do with our lives and how you intend to conform us more and more into the image and the love of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. How many of you know the name Jane Marshevsky? Okay, a few of you, several of you may better know her by her stage name, Nightbird. Does that ring a bell? So a couple months ago, millions of people were introduced to this woman when she was a contestant on America's Got Talent. Uh, 
which according to Nielsen ratings is like the most watched television program of any kind in America. And she's arguably a very talented singer. I mean, I don't know like good singing from bad singing. I, I know stuff that I like and don't like, but really what captured people's imagination was her backstory and just an incredibly positive outlook on life. You see, Nightbird was diagnosed with terminal cancer about two years ago, from my understanding, and was given about a 2% chance to live. And yet there she stood on stage, on the biggest stage of them all right now, and she's smiling from ear to ear, and her eyes were just sparkling with this authentic joy. Even the perpetually sour Simon Cowell was like impressed. He didn't have a category for how can you be going through the things that you're going through in your body, in your life, and still be so joyful? How can you be going through so much pain and uncertainty even as you stand on stage and yet there's this authentic joy? And he asked her that. And her answer was this. She said, you can't wait until life isn't hard anymore to decide to be happy. A couple weeks ago, she was interviewed on CNN with Chris Cuomo and he had a similar reaction. He had like almost broke down in tears saying, your outlook on life, given the midst of the horrible circumstances you're in, was incredibly powerful to my wife and my kids and me. How do you explain this dark cloud of suffering hanging over your life and yet simultaneously this buoyant spirit of joy? And she said this in that CNN interview. She said, you don't deny the pain of today, but you don't deny the hope of the future. And this psalm contains this kind of realism mixed with this kind of hope. And we're gonna see this morning three things that it shows us. It shows us the reality of suffering. It shows us the reversal of situation and it shows us the response of surrender. And then after we look at what this Psalm says, I'm gonna give you a bonus point, a surprise point, And uh, that's the root of salvation, okay? So let's, let's go off and running. Number one, the reality of suffering. And I wanted to say that in spite of what some of you have been taught, and I mean deliberately taught maybe by someone in a position of trust, maybe even in church, trusting God does not magically replace the suffering and the pain and the brokenness in your life with just health and wealth and happiness and smooth sailing. God never promised you your best life now. In fact, Jesus said the opposite. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation, John 16, 33. And I think that's important for some of you to hear because maybe you've been taught that salvation is like a passport to easy living. People who accept Jesus have a good and easy life from that point on. Maybe some of you were told that everything bad in your life would go away if you just had enough faith. And some of you probably are exhausted beating yourself up with guilt and shame 
because you look at your life and you're like, it's messy. It's broken. I don't have things together like other Christians around me seem to have stuff together. Some really hard stuff is happening and I guess it's my fault. And the first thing I want you to see in this psalm is just how real the psalmist is with his own personal suffering. Look at this with me. Verse three, he talks about the snares of death which is a Hebrew word that, that literally the picture is being tangled up in ropes or cords and drowning because you can't break free. And the more you kind of struggle, my, my, my boys were doing this this past weekend. They're, we were up in Grand Lake and they're like, hey, let's, uh, let's go fishing. And, uh, you know, they, they cast and inevitably the line gets wrapped around the pole. And so they like shake it and do all kinds of things with it. And, you know, it, it just never works to create a better situation that doesn't untangle something. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And it gets all knotted up on the, on the pole, on the reel. And then we got to kind of start over from scratch. Well, that's the picture here when he says the snares of death is he's wrapped up in something. And almost like the more he struggles with his situation, the worse it gets. Verse three, he talks about the pangs of Sheol, which was the grave or the place of the dead to the Hebrew people. Still verse three, he talks about distress and anguish. Verse six, he talks about being brought low, which is literally to be brought into poverty or great need. Verse eight, he talks about death and tears and stumbling. Verse 10, he says, I am greatly afflicted. And verse 16, you see him talking about bonds, which is a word for chains or iron fetters. This is how he feels. And what I want you to note is that the psalmist is saying, I'm in trouble and there's trouble in me. He's describing circumstances that are incredibly painful, incredibly difficult, but he's also saying not only are they out there, but my own internal processing of that, I am in anguish in my soul, in my thoughts. And I want you to just pause and appreciate the honesty and the authenticity of the Bible, particularly the Psalms. I mean, you've even got something like verse 11, where he says, in the midst of his brokenness, and it's a word that in the Hebrew literally means like in his haste. Everyone out there is a pathological liar. You ever do that where you're so hurt that you start concluding things about other people and start ascribing the worst of motives to other people and just blaming other people and saying, everybody's this way and all things are like this and nothing ever. And when we're speaking that way, we're speaking out of pain, much like the psalmist is speaking out of his pain. And I love this about scripture that they're never whitewashing the human condition. They're never like tucking it away and pretending like, hey, if you got God in your life, everything's gonna be awesome. There's a realism, there's an honesty. The writers are never like, you know what, I'm gonna sign off for a while and I'll come back when I feel better and feel like I have something cheerful to say. They just journal through the midst of the pain and the suffering and the distress. And I want all of us to start there with this text because many of you are suffering through something right now. And if you're not right now, you have and or you will suffer through something because like Jesus said, in this world, you have suffering, tribulation. And maybe your suffering is physical, like cancer, like 
heart disease, like chronic pain. Maybe your suffering is financial. Maybe your suffering is vocational. And even with all the jobs that are available out there right now, you can't find something or you can't find something that's a good fit for you and what you're interested in doing to invest your life. Maybe it's a broken relationship or a series of relationships that haunt you. Like, how did I mess that up? Or how did they mess that up for me? And it's painful. Maybe it's literally substance abuse. Maybe some of you are experiencing dark thoughts and dark emotions, and you're sitting there in your depression, your anxiety, your anger, your constant frustration. Maybe it's something else. But here's my first question for you. What are you doing in response to those layers of suffering in your life? Do you feel like to be a Christian, I've got to hide it. I've just got to come to church, put on a smile, pretend like everything's okay. Um, And by the way, if you're sitting there and you're doing that, you can probably kind of extrapolate out how many other people around you are doing the same thing, right? And on social media, like, oh, post these pictures and these kinds of statements, but that may not be the real you or the, the complete you. Some of you may be taking a different tact to respond. Maybe you're um, venting, you know, just, just exploding over the stuff going on in your life and obsessing over the stuff going on in your life. And really what the key I see here in the psalm is in, you, don't, you don't have to hide it in shame. You don't have to obsess over it. You do want to acknowledge it. And that's okay, the reality of suffering, point one. And let me show you a key here in verse 10. Verse 10, the psalmist writes, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. So here's the picture. He's saying to his friends, he's saying maybe to family members, I am greatly afflicted. And they're like, yeah, we can see that. And he says, yet I believe. Okay, this is a key because you hear this tension. You hear this beauty in this one simple statement. He's saying, I'm not denying my pain, but I'm also not denying God. Right? And it's that, that statement of, of Nightbird of, I don't have to deny the pain of today, but I also don't have to deny the hope of the future because God is still active and I'm still crying out and he's still watching, okay? So he keeps believing. And, and I love this, that in the midst of his suffering, he's like, God, this is really, really hard right now. But I believe you're worth calling out to. By the way, maybe you know someone, maybe you are someone that's kind of turned your back on God because of suffering. And you've thought, it should have worked out differently in my life if I put this kind of emphasis on, you know, showing up to church and worshiping and spending time in the word and praying and praying and praying and praying and crying over my condition until I have no more tears to shed and no more prayers to pray. And this psalm shows us a better way forward than simply giving up on God, okay? And that's your point too. After the reality of the situation, we see the reversal, or after the reality of suffering, we see the reversal of situation, okay? Now, we don't know how long this writer's anguish of circumstances and of soul lasted. It could have been months, could have been years. And some of you are sitting in the midst of something right now that it's not just, uh, you know, I, I... 
broke a bone and it took a few months to heal and almost come back stronger. You're like, it's been months, it's been years, and, and if anything, it just feels worse. But what we do know from the very first verses of the psalm is that God did reverse his circumstance. God did rescue him. And this is one of the central features of this particular psalm is that God rescued him. And I want to show you two important things about this reversal of situation, about this rescue. I want to tell you about our job in the midst of the pain, and I want to tell you about God's job, okay? And I want, it's very important to differentiate between those two things. Number one, our job is to keep calling on God in faith. That's our job, okay? I already showed you the faith in verse 10, where he's like, even in the conflict, even in the anguish, I believed. Now notice what the writer does in the midst of his suffering. Verses one and two says, he called on the Lord and he pleaded for mercy. Verse four says, he called on the name of the Lord, like Yahweh, deliver my soul. Deliver me from the circumstances or change me so that I can handle the circumstances. You see, this calling on the name of the Lord is mentioned four times in this psalm. So obviously it's important. I want you to understand what it means, calling on the name of the Lord. Okay, we have three children, all of them at various points in their lives, especially when they were younger. In the middle of the night, you would hear, Mommy, Mom. Mom, mom, you know, and then you, you're kind of sitting there like negotiating it in your head. And you're like, okay, based on the tone of the voice being used, you figure out how serious it is, how quickly do both parents need to respond. And in my case, usually they want mom. So that's awesome because I can just roll over and go back to sleep and she can handle whatever the mom thing is. Um, what I love about like calling on the name of mom in the middle of the night is very rarely are children like mom, okay, I need this and this, and here's my situation, and here's what's wrong, and here's what you're supposed to do for me. They just know if mom gets here, it's gonna be okay. I just need mom to get here, okay? One of my questions for you is when you're in trouble, when you need some kind of rescue, what name do you call on? If you're like me and you're self-reliant, it may be that more often than not, you're kind of just dialing up your own name, right? Like, it's difficult, it's painful, it's hard, but I got this. Rather than calling on the name of the Lord, it's calling on your own name. Or do you call on the name of Google, you know, or WebMD? Oh, they've got all the answers. I'll just self-diagnose and be golden, Right? I'm not making fun of you, but do you call the name of Xanax or Percocet or Mary Jane? Rather than, I'm not dismissing the need for drugs or prescription drugs, but I'm saying rather than calling on the name of the Lord, is your functional trust and reliance in a chemical? Do you call on the name of Jordan Peterson or Brene Brown or Stephen Covey or Rachel Hollis or Jim Collins or Glennon Doyle? where you're like, oh, this philosopher, this psychiatrist, this, this popular blogger, they'll, they'll know what to do. And again, there's a place for advice, especially godly advice, but are you immediately turning to names that you know, famous people, famous writers, you're like, oh, that resonates with my soul. 
instinctively rather than calling on the name of God. I think of this story in 1 Kings 18 when I think about calling on the name of the Lord. And many of you will know this story, but it's in that day where Israel's kind of being overrun by the worship of false gods, particularly one called Baal. And Elijah is just bemoaning the fact that there's like no one left who worships Yahweh like himself. And he challenges the prophets of Baal to this duel. And he basically says, okay, you guys build your stone altar and I'll build my stone altar and we'll gather all the people together and you call on the name of Baal and I'll call on the name of Yahweh and the God that answers with fire and consumes the sacrifice, he's God, okay? So they're calling on one God, Elijah's calling on the name of the other God. And what we learn from all of these things, I'm saying it several different ways, but to call on the name of someone or something is to put your functional hope and trust in it. You're basically saying, I'm calling on your name because I believe you have the power, the authority, and also the compassion and the concern for me to do something to alleviate my problem. So when we go back to Psalm 116 and four times over and over, the writer in the midst of his suffering is saying, I'm calling on the name of Yahweh. He's just saying, Lord, I believe you are worthy of my worship and faith. When life hurts, I believe you hear my cries and you're willing to do something to rescue me. And it's kind of like the child crying out in the middle of the night and I encourage you to do this. Don't, don't just cry out to God and be like, God, uh, here's my problem and here's what I need you to do for me. But sometimes just cry out his name. God, help. I don't even know what I need. I don't even know. And I don't want to be disappointed with your solutions because I was looking for a different solution and you didn't do what I wanted you to do. You did what was best for me. So just cry out. So I said, our job is to keep calling on God in faith. I want you to notice what your responsibility is not. It's not your job to figure out exactly what's wrong with you and exactly what solutions you need to your problem. It is not your job to fix yourself. It is also not your job to make yourself worthy so that God will listen to you just saying, help. God says, simply call on the name of the Lord. Okay, so if your job is just simply calling on the name of the Lord, now God's job is to rescue and save. God knows what you need. And verse five shows us that God's character is the foundation of his works. Why can you and I rely on God to show up and do something when we're just like, Lord, help, have mercy, because verse 5 says he's gracious, righteous, and merciful. That's why, therefore, verse 1, he hears. Verse 2, he inclines his ear, which is like leaning in. I have to do this with my kids. Like, you ever do this? Like, your kids are trying to tell you something, and they start, like, they start facing you, and then they finish over here, you know? And, like, they start it, and you're like, I can't hear you. And they start talking to your, and then they finish over here. And you're like, okay. And then you got to be like, okay, I got to incline my ear. What are you saying? God does that with us. As Chris said last week or the week before, it's not God just like from his high place, like looking down at us and being like, wow, you're so far beneath me, but what a great and magnanimous God I am. It's like, no, he stoops down to get in your mess, to incline his ear, to hear what you're crying out to him. Verse six, on the basis of his character, it says he preserves the simple. 
Also verse six, it says he saves, which I love this. The root word is like, you're hemmed in, you're pinched in a narrow place. And the salvation word here is literally like he makes a wide place. You ever feel that like tightening even in your chest and in your emotions and you're like, ugh, something just crushed and God's like, one of those salvations is just like, let me just make a wide place for you. Like lead my sheep beside still waters. Verse seven, on the basis of his character, he deals bountifully with us. Verse eight, he delivers from death, from tears, from stumbling. Verse 12 says he gives us benefits. Verse 16 says he loosens our bonds. And what I want, to, what I want you to see in all of this is that the, the reversal of the writer's situation came when faith connected him to the character of God. God is who he is, unchangeably, forever, who he is. But the psalmist turned his faith, his trust, his belief, and that connected him with the essence of God's character, and then God went to work. Now, I'm not saying that if you just cry out, okay, God, have mercy, that's what he said this morning, that doesn't mean that God will automatically and just dramatically change all of your external circumstances if you just pray, pray this once or seven times or 70 times seven. But at the very least, what this psalm shows us is God does incline his ear to you. He's listening, he's paying attention, he cares. And he's up to something that he defines in your life as salvation or rescue, as blessing. And again, if you're looking for just the exact kind of salvation and benefit and blessing that you've predetermined, this is what it looks like for God to save me, you may miss a hundred other things that God is doing in your life to deliver you from that place. And sometimes even, and many of you know this from experience, sometimes even when God leaves you in the painful circumstances, he changes something inside you so that your response is incredible. Like, no, my situation didn't change, but I find myself resting in and trusting God. And some of you would say, I never felt as close to God as when I was right in the middle of the worst season of my life and God met me there. And did everything change right away? No, it didn't. But God seemed as close as he actually is because of how he came near to me and how he loved me and how he changed my heart to receive his grace. So God's job is to rescue and save. Now point three, the response of surrender. And this is another main theme that you see. If these are the three key themes of the Psalm that I see, again, first of all, just the reality of suffering. We're going through life. We're all suffering. We're all broken. We're all hurt sometimes. We all hurt other people sometimes. That's the reality of our world. But then you have this reversal of situation as the psalmist just continues to trust God in the midst of it and just say, Lord, I call on your name, have mercy on me. And God does. And then here's how the psalmist responds. Look, look at the very first line of the psalm. He's saying things like, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. And by the way, that doesn't sound super spiritual. If you think about it, I love God because he delivered me. But I think it's so important. I think it's so true to life that he's not saying I loved God like nobody's business and therefore he rescued me. 
He's saying the opposite. He's saying, I struggled. I didn't love the Lord perfectly, but I love him more and more. As Richard introduced that one song, in a sense, to the psalmist, God kept getting better and better, not because God was actually changing to be better, but because the psalmist's experience of God is like, wow, you can meet me in a place like that when my emotions are that messed up and I'm probably saying some things sometimes that I don't mean, like everyone out there is a liar except for me. So God is there. And over and over again, then the psalmist is going to say various ways. I I want you to see how I responded to God's kindness, to God's initiating mercy in my life. Like verse 7, he's basically saying, if God has given me rest, then I want my soul to live in that rest. And Christian, it's important for you to understand that God has given you rest. And so don't just keep on striving and working and laboring and proving yourself by your own performance. Enjoy the rest that God has given you. Verse nine, he's still responding. He says, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Verses 12 through 14, he's asking himself, like, what shall I render to the Lord? And what do I give back to God for all his benefits to me? He says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. So whatever promises he's making, and I'm not encouraging this, but you ever do this? You're like, God, if you get me out of this jam, I promise I will never again. Or if you get me out of this, if you heal me, I will use the gift of life that you've given me going forward to to live for this. And he's saying something important. He's like, God did save, and it's important for me to keep my promises to God and to offer back to the Lord. Verse 17, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. And again, what I want you to hear in all this is he's saying, God, you initiated with your grace in my life. You saved me, not because of what I've done for you, but just because of who you are. So therefore... Therefore, I love you more. I trust you more. I I find it easier and easier to surrender my whole life to you because you prove yourself over and over again to be incredibly trustworthy and good. That's what he's saying. So question, are you resting like this? Are you recounting, rehearsing the goodness of God in your life and saying, therefore, God, I'm going to rest. I'm going to trust you and love you and put you first and surrender my life to serve you. And I want you to hear one more time before I move on that the order here is so important. As Tim Keller says all the time, the gospel is not, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. It is, I'm accepted by the free grace of Christ, therefore I obey. Or in the context of this psalm, it's not, I'll love God so much and I'll surrender to him in the midst of my pain and I'll do everything just right. And when God sees my love and my sincerity and my performance, how good and magnanimous I am in the midst of horrible stuff, then he will save me. That's not the order. He's saying, God saved me. And because he did by free grace, it is my delight to put him first. It is my delight to surrender to him and to serve him. Okay? So that's the psalm 
And I think you're seeing the theme, hopefully. The Lord is gracious to all who call on his name. If you call on his name, the Lord is gracious. For some of you here this morning, that may be calling on his name, Yahweh or Jesus, for the very first time. You find yourself in circumstances that are a mix of good and bad, painful and healthy, and you just say, God, this from this psalm, from scripture, it sounds like you're what I'm missing in my life, and I call on you for mercy and forgiveness and true freedom, and he delights to give that, okay? Um, but as I've said before, in this series, we're not just looking at each individual psalm, like just a microcosm. We are always going to this. How does this psalm point me to my need for Christ? Or how is this foreshadowing Christ or speaking of Christ? And this is this, uh, this is special bonus point, okay? So point four, the root of salvation. And it would suffice to say that all of the salvation, the rescue, the benefits that are spoken of in this psalm ultimately come through Jesus Christ. We understand that from the New Testament. We get the promises of this psalm by faith in Jesus because he is the one and only Savior. Okay, so the psalm is pointing to him in a generic sense of like, if you're crying out to God for mercy, what is the means by which the Father is in a sense going to deliver that mercy into all the areas of your life and redeem your soul? It's through his son, Jesus. Okay, but I also want to remind you, this particular psalm is in a collection of eight or so psalms that are known as the Egyptian Hallel which means Jesus would have recited or sung this specific psalm on the night of Passover. Okay, so think about this. If you know your scriptures, if you know the gospels, that night in the upper room in Jerusalem, when Jesus is celebrating what we call now the last supper with his disciples, Psalm 116 would have been one of the few psalms that Jesus was reciting with his disciples on that specific night. And after Jesus recites this psalm, he goes out into the night, he goes to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays this psalm, right? Father, hear my voice, listen to my pleas for mercy. The snares of death encompass me, the pangs of Sheol lay hold on me. I am in distress and anguish. I call on your name. Deliver my soul from death. Deliver my eyes from tears. Deliver my feet from stumbling. And Jesus ends this prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, what short piece of it was encapsulated for us in the gospels by saying, Father, let this cup, this cup of your wrath, this cup of judgment, let it pass from me. And get this church, for the first and only time in history, someone prayed the prayer of Psalm 116 and the father answered no. The only time in history that someone prayed this psalm, have mercy, deliver my soul, keep my feet from stumbling, keep my eyes from tears. 
And within hours of praying these words, Jesus was beaten to a pulp and nailed to a cross. And the sky grew dark in the middle of the day and the earth shook and the man on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So church, do you know why we get the salvation and blessing of Psalm 116? It's because the only perfect person who ever lived took punishment and curse. He's basically saying all of you because of, not, not because you're just broken or live in a broken place, but because of your sin, because of the things that you've done, because of the things you've left undone, because of those attitudes, because of loving other things more than you love me, you don't deserve the salvation and blessing of Psalm 116. But I'm going to give it to you as a free gift by taking everything that you deserved and giving you everything that Jesus deserved. So you come to Psalm 116, and how is it that verse 13, you and I can drink the cup of salvation? It's because on Good Friday, Jesus drank the cup of wrath. He drank the cup of punishment. He says, let me, let me drink what you're supposed to drink so that you can drink what only I deserve to drink. That's what Jesus is doing right after reciting this psalm. So, again, I'm not saying that if you pray this prayer once or ten times, God will instantly reverse your fortunes in a dramatic and instantaneous way, as we would like that he would do. And some of you may still sit in this and say, but I, I wonder why life hurts so much. And though we don't always know what the answer is, like why is God allowing this to continue? Is it because I'm supposed to learn something? Am, am, am I an example to someone else of persevering faith? Like, I, I don't know, but we know what the answer is not. It can't be that God doesn't love you. It cannot be that God hasn't planned to save and to prosper you in the end because the cross forever testifies of the magnitude of God's love for you. He's saying, I will drink that cup of wrath so that you can drink the cup of salvation. And by the way, that phrase in verse 13, in the Hebrew, you talk about foreshadowing. In the Hebrew, it literally says, you will lift up the cup of Yeshua. Jesus. You get the blessing that Jesus has for you. You flourish in the promises of this psalm because of Jesus. So let me bring you back to the present moment here in concluding. Many of you are suffering right now. Many of you are hurting something painful. Again, circumstances out there that are pressing in on you, or maybe it's something in here that's like just pressing everywhere. And sometimes you know that's worse. You're like, man, to I feel like a whiner because my circumstances seem okay to everybody else. They don't see me going through horrible things. But, but I know in here and in my thoughts and my emotions are, are a wreck. And okay, so acknowledge that. I mean, it's complete nonsense that, that the scripture is like, stuff it down. You're not a good Christian. Look around. Nobody else is dealing with the stuff you're dealing with. No, yeah, we all are. So like this psalmist, acknowledge that distress and acknowledge the hope and the salvation of your Savior. Call on his name. Don't deny the pain of today, but don't deny the hope of the future because of Jesus. 
And let me just come back to, to Nightbird and finish that story in closing here. Where did she get her stage name? Maybe some of you have read this or seen this. She's shared this a couple places. She said two nights in a row, she had a dream that the birds were singing outside her window. Then she says on the third consecutive night, she actually woke up at 3 a.m. and the birds were singing, in fact. And she, she journaled this in her blog. She said, the birds were singing as if the sun had come up, but there was no proof of the sun yet. I wanted to embody that, being somebody that could sing through a dark time because I was so full of hope and assurance that there would be a morning. Nightbird. So, friends, what we do with the psalm is we say, hey, the darkness is real, but so is the light of the world. The pain is real, but so is the healer. The curse for our sin is real, but so is the Savior. And you and I, by the way, have far more evidence of that second part than the psalmist living before Jesus ever had. So, plant your flag of trust, of hope, of confidence in the middle of your pain, in the middle of your suffering, and call on the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we your people call on your name because this is not something that you invite us to do one time to enter into salvation only to kind of move on to better things either in life or even in the Christian life. Lord, we wanna be a people who call on your name over and over. We wanna call on your name when things are better than we could have ever hoped or imagined. We wanna call on your name, giving you thanks, interceding on behalf of other people who are still desperately in need of your mercy. But we also wanna be a people who call on your name in the midst of the deepest suffering, in the midst of even our own apathy. When everything just seems like mediocre, it's like, okay, it's not great, it's not bad, it's not awful. We wanna call on your name because you are righteous, you are gracious, you are merciful. You do intend for your children the salvation and blessings of this psalm. You want to benefit our lives. You want to prosper us. You want to cause us to flourish deeply even in the midst of great pain. So help us to call on you. And again, Lord, if that's someone calling out for the first time, Yeshua, Jesus, save me from my own choices, from my own mistakes, from my own idols, then pray that prayer this morning. Just call on his name. Maybe you are running from him. You, you, you trust in him. It's just a season. But this morning is the time for you to call on him and in a sense, just come home. Maybe you're actually running because life is painful. Um, you, you, you didn't get the life that you dreamed of, the life that other people around you seem to be getting with, I don't know, a, a particular kind of job, acceptance to the college of your dreams, 
a spouse, children. There, there are many reasons that we could be envious and disgruntled when we see the blessing that you're giving to others. Lord, help us to call on your name. Help us all, like the psalmist did, just to call on your name in the midst of all your people so that other people see, man, we are here to worship you, Jesus, and call on your name together. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.